Welcome to the panel, RNZ National, Dr Ali Henry and Peter Dunn with me today. And today was the start of Term 3 for schools, the first day of school back, not long finished. At the start of the holidays, the sentiment was that it was a badly needed break. Such was the sickness and the absences with some teachers and students at breaking point. The New Zealand Herald editorial covered this today and said that this could be a missed opportunity by the government. Uh, the reset after the holidays could have been a good time, for example, to introduce a mask mandate in schools. So with us is Phil Holstein, principal at Burnside High School. Kia ora, Phil. Kia ora, Wallace, and to Ella and Peter. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure, Phil. So how did the day go? <laughs> day one, well, <laughs> we're back on site and we've done day one. And, and it was great to be all back together on site and long may that continue, because at the end of last term, we had um, a short period of home learning for everyone. We were forced into that situation because of the staff sickness in particular, and either or home isolating. So let's look forward to a better term. Gosh, so the staff sickness toward the end of last term was that significant? Very much so. Um, it got to the point, not only um, the teaching staff, but the wider staff as well. And that included even the senior leadership team, um, our counselling and pastoral team, which, which is really important for our students around that care. Um, so we just found um, we were forced into a situation that we resorted to our hybrid learning model that we've adopted in these situations. And that involved for the whole school home learning for the last three days. And helping support students going into NCEA, what of that? Oh, very much so. Over the holiday period, I've been fortunate enough to work for other, uh, work with other um, heads of regional principal associations. And in an unprecedented um, way, we have written, written formally to NCQA and to the Minister of Education, requesting that some sort of litigation or some sort of acknowledgement of the impact that COVID has had on teaching, learning and assessment, particularly at the latter part of Term 2. We are looking for and seeking some assistance of support for our students. Have you heard any response uh, or support yet? Yeah, well, today, would you believe? Um, I have it in front of me right now um, where we have got just an acknowledgement um, of the situation and to, in, and to inform us that they are working on um, how to better address this situation compared to previous years. And they are saying it is a high priority for the ministry and NTQA and they'll be in touch as soon as possible to look for, and we look forward to that. Okay, so you've just had that uh, come through this afternoon. Today, and we, this today, afternoon. Yes. yes, so we'll follow that up um, uh, later, uh, Phil, but uh, let's bring in uh, Ella. Oh, kia ora. Look, uh, uh, yeah. we're in week two of our second semester at AUT and most universities are back now and probably like you, finding equally uh, low levels of turnout in some classes. Students still have enormous concerns over and above the burden of surviving as students with, you know, mm. how to... I mean, most of my students are coming with masks. If we're safe yeah. enough to be two metres apart and we've got good ventilation, we might take them off. But, you know... 
it's very difficult to think about at the quality of learning or the quality of teaching when your primary concern is whether you're going to get through the day alive. And, and I just have so much sympathy for students and teachers in the high school system where there are often many more students than in our small classrooms. Well, thank you, Alice, for that understanding. Yes, um, around the mask wearing in particular, um, without, you know, we're removing the mandates um, from the education sector for mask wearing at the end of term, term one really challenged schools. Um, we were in a position we expected right from the start, we expected that students wore masks indoors. And we have been in a very fortunate position from our community that they, are, they were complied and they recognised the need for it to keep themselves and others safe. And our school just wore masks inside, and that was the normal right. practice. So we're just going to continue that this term for as long as it takes. But for some schools that probably varied that mask wearing, it's going to be harder for them as they enter this term to bring back and enforce something that is not mandated, but it's almost encouraged and expected now. But mm. I, I think that's the big thing that we're in control of is mask wearing. And if we, as far as possible, as many people comply, adhere to that, then it's going to be safer for everyone. Okay, we've got another guest coming soon, but uh, Peter. Just a couple of questions, Phil. Um, I was interested to, to hear what the numbers were like today, both in terms of staff and students turning up. And then I just wanted to know, since we're likely to be in this environment for a few more months yet at least, mm. what the sort of messages you're giving to staff and students particularly about the need to keep wearing masks and keep those disciplines yeah. might be? I think that as, as it's become part of the norm from the last term, and for us, we're in a situation, the expectation is the same. A message I sent out to our community before the end of the term, it's to that effect. We just carry on as we did in term one and thank them for their support. It does make a difference. Um, and I think even today, it was just part of what we do now. Right. Very nice to have you on the program, Phil. Kia ora. That's Phil Holstein, the principal of, Burnside, principal of Burnside High School. And listening to that is Sally Workwell from the Relief Teachers Association. Sally, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace. Your members under the pump, Sally? Yes, relievers all over New Zealand are um, feeling the pressure of COVID and um, the fact that um, we're at three quarter, halfway through the year and there are jobs that are being filled and, um, yeah, they're getting sick and it's affecting um, not only themselves but the schools that they work for, which is obviously a huge pressure for them. And do, do you have enough relief teachers on hand available at all? I would say that um, we're down, our contact and staff think has said that we're down 10 to 15% from this time last year in terms of relievers, and that's due to the fact that um, relievers are going back to full-time work because of the insecurity of COVID. Right. Um, and also there's less um, reliever availability as people go overseas and go on their OEs and things like that. And also jobs are up, like there are 10 to 15, 10 to, 15 to 20% um, more jobs going in schools at oh. the moment for relievers. Tricky, isn't it, Ella? Because relief teaching, uh, it's <laughs> such a vital part of the workforce, isn't it? You want to know, mm. uh, Ella, that uh, you have that continuity of a class if uh, a teacher or a lecturer does fall sick. But also yes, exactly. relief teachers are often the most vulnerable. You know, they're right. the ones that are on call. We, we haven't seen in the three years, I think, of this um, pandemic 
a really strategic view from the top about how to be building, and, and I'm saying this as somebody who's educating educators, how do we build our capacity at the bottom so we're getting more graduates through rather than relying on the workforce that we have that are actually crumbling under the stress and the pressure? I expect more from the Ministry of Education to facilitate more, faster, better training of new teachers, nurses, right. and all those other areas that we are in dire need of. Sally? Yes, I agree. I mean, uh, relievers are mostly females and they're having to stay home with their children. Relievers do not get, um, uh, you know, they t- get sick pay, but it depends on the relationship they have with the school. And also, you know, um, if someone needs to stay home with the kids, it will be usually the mum. Peter. Because what, what adds to your pressure, Sally, is the very short-term nature of this, isn't it? The fact that mm. you don't know necessarily from one day to the next what the demand for relievers in a particular school is going to be let alone how you meet that need. And I guess that's exacerbated by everything else that's going on at the moment. But I wonder, too, whether whether a number of relievers being retired or former teachers and and perhaps being a bit more reluctant to get out and about because of the risk that they might be exposing them to is also adding to your problems. You're exactly right. I mean, there are relievers out there. Most of, I think, about 20% of relievers are older relievers, and they choose to often stay home rather than um, Mm. put themselves in a position of becoming sick or... Um, affecting Mifano. Very good to have you on the program, Sally. Thank you uh, for your time. That's Sally Workle there from uh, the Relief uh, Teachers Association. It is 17 past four. Dr. Ella Henry and Peter Dunn joining me this Monday afternoon. Lovely to have you company. And thank you for your feedback this afternoon. Quite a bit of response regarding uh, traffic offices. We're also talking about trams later on. Do you recall at all riding on trams, particularly in Auckland, where the network was apparently absolutely extensive. But to this, news just ahead. Green MP Chloe Swarbrick has ruled herself out of running for the Green Party co-leadership. In a Facebook post, she thanked people for expressing confidence in her and that she will continue on as Auckland Central MP and other parliamentary portfolios and committees. Ms Swarbrick says she won't endorse any candidates. But the future of James Shaw is still... On Troubled Waters, he's thrown his hat back in the ring for the co-leadership, saying his work is not done. He retained most of the delegate votes at this year's AGM, but failed to obtain the required 75%, something he told reporters he's taken very seriously and doubled down on his commitment to the Greens' values and policies. If anything, it shows how much our members care about the work that we do. Uh, and that has only made me more determined than ever to fight for the action that we need. If I am successful, I will redouble my efforts uh, and push for bold action on climate change to heal our native wildlife and to end poverty. This thoughts, we're joined by former Green Party MP Gareth Hughes, no longer part of Greens membership. Gareth, kia ora. Welcome to the show. Yeah, kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora, panel. Now, uh, firstly, yeah, this breaking news here, Chloe Swarbrick ruling us about a Green Party membership. Your thoughts on that, Gareth? Oh, look, I've worked both with Chloe and James in Parliament, and I rate them both highly. They've got lots of, you know, credible attributes. They're both passionate people that care about New Zealand. And, yeah, it's a bit of a tough time for the Green Party. When you look at other parties, normally spills or coups happen because the MPs have decided to rebel against the leader, and the Greens, they do things differently, and it's been a, a grassroots uh, process. You recently wrote a book about the history of the Greens. Have we ever seen a divide in the party like this before? 
Well, it's a good question. I mean, we've never seen this particular technique used before, the reopen nominations. Obviously, co-leaders have operated in this political environment with this rule for many years. You know, Jeanette Fitzsimons in my book about her, A Gentle Radical, you know, covered her 14 years of leadership and, you know, she stayed close to the party. The party's had tough times in the past, often over policy or direction. Yeah, I don't know if this is the toughest time. It will be up there, though. Do you think James uh, Gareth has been paying enough attention to those in the party uh, who are unhappy? Well, again, I'm, I'm not a member, so I'm not actively involved. Yeah. But when you look at the rules, I mean, in a sense, the Greens didn't have leaders at all for the first five years of their modern existence. And when they were the Values Party, they experimented with one leader, no leader, three leaders, four leaders. And a sort of bargain was struck with the membership and the leaders. They knew they needed leaders to be politically effective in a parliamentary context. But the sort of quid pro quo was that there was this safety valve, this 25% uh, threshold to keep the leaders close to the membership. And I think that'll be the question James will be asking himself. You know, these currents flowing deep within the party, was he aware of them before these rapids hit? And that's been the skill of Green Party leaders historically, is being close to the party and understanding these currents that are flowing beneath with the membership. All right, Ella, you first on this. Yeah, and I want to preface my statement by the fact that nearly 30 years ago, 1994, I was the executive director of Greenpeace New Zealand. And a number of the issues that were raised 30 years ago and the timeline and projection has actually sped up. So I understand the frustration of, and I'm not a Green Party member, but I understand the frustration of Greens as they look around the world, as we look around the world and seeing the absolute crisis. I mean, the storms here the heat in Europe, the drought, the climate refugees, everything prophesied by Greens 40 years ago is coming to pass. And if we don't act quickly and firmly, our planet, well, our planet will survive. We won't. So so I do see the frustration of some sectors of the Green Party who want to see more, faster, stronger, more strident action, particularly while we have a government that has an absolute mandate. So, I mean, I understand the pressures and I hope they resolve it because we need a strong, resilient Green movement in this country. Gareth? You know, that's absolutely right, and I think you know the party can be proud of some of the foundational steps they've put in. But we're still importing coal, we're still doing deep sea oil drilling, you know, we're still subsidising petrol and fossil fuels, uh, we're still not building enough renewable energy. So we've got a lot of progress still to make. Um, you know, reflecting on writing this book, you know, it was Jeanette Fitzsimons who first launched the country's first climate campaign in the late '80s. So. Part of the motivation also was to write a history of the Green Party, the world's first national-level Green Party. So, look, it's got an honourable, long history. It's something we should be proud of as Kiwis, that we had the world's first Green Party. And I think everyone acknowledges just the importance of the climate and the biodiversity crisis and the need to act. Peter. Well, I just want to come back to um, James Shaw's situation and just be interested in Gareth's view on this. It seems to me that the Prime Minister's intervention thrown James a little bit of a lifeline in the sense that he carries on as climate change minister regardless of what happens to him as co-leader. And presumably that means that his particular set of views and priorities around climate change become, as they have been, the government's priorities for the, at least the balance of the term, notwithstanding what the membership or the caucus of the Green Party might think. So it just strikes me, Gareth, that on the one sense, James sort of wins no matter what. But where does that leave the Green Party, do you think? 
Yeah, well, I guess on the other hand, though, you could see it as a candidate if they did choose to challenge James could sort of make it a pitch to get a two-for-one deal. You know, James stays on in the climate role, and I'll be a more vocal advocate uh, calling for farther and faster, further and faster action on climate change. But, you know, I've, I'm aware of the criticism that, uh, that's been levelled against the Greens, which is that they're simply delivering Labour's climate agenda, not their own. Look, I think James's comments have been heartening. I know he wants to go further and faster, and that's sort of the, the tension within the party. You know, this is a member-driven party that's always uh, valued its internal democracy, and I think that's exactly what you're seeing play out here over the last few days. I'm just looking at the in terms of the rules. Um, some some have mentioned that they they believe they're kind of poorly thought out. You've got, I mean, Shaw was voted out after 32 of 107 delegates voted to vacate his position, more than the 25% threshold necessary under the Greens rules. So, what have you got? Giving veto power to a vocal minority is that what's happening? Are they really? Is that really democratic? Well, I guess what you've got to understand is these delegates aren't just individual actors doing whatever they feel like. You know, they're given the mandate from their branch and they would have reached a consensus position what they were doing with the number of votes they were entitled to from their branch. So clearly there's a, a, a minority or a large current flowing beneath the party which is disaffected. I think, however, the way the Greens' rules have been structured is to make sure that the leadership is kept close to the membership, is really reflecting what the members want. All other Green Party co-leaders have managed this, the same environment. And I guess you could just point out that compared to the other big parties, in fact, this system with this threshold has been actually more stable and seen longer-term leaders than, say, Labour or National over the last 25 years. So I wouldn't be surprised if Green people would say that actually it's worked in practice. Mm. So how do you, you think it's going to play out, Gareth? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think... Uh, it'll be interesting to see if someone puts their, their name forward. I think Chloe was the person that a lot of people were, were speculating on and uh, were thinking she might consider it. Uh, it'll, be, it'll, be, it'll be interesting if someone puts their hat in the ring. But well, Green, Green MP Dr Elizabeth Kerikeri is considering options when it comes to the party's vacant co-leadership and she's planning to uh, put out a statement after a caucus meeting uh, tomorrow. Uh, thoughts on that? Oh, well, I, I haven't served with Elizabeth in Parliament, so she's one of the, the new MPs. Now, I mean, once upon a time when I had less wrinkles and no grey hair, I stood for co-leader of the Greens. Yes, it was a gruelling process. We had about 40 yeah. different debates, so I don't know the party takes its member democracy seriously. So if there's a contest, uh, you can expect it to be vigorous and um, pretty uh, personal and a lot of uh, mm. miles on the ground. OK, Gareth, kia ora. Thank you for your time. That's Gareth Hughes there, former Green Party MP. Just around the panel on this, uh, any p- personal preferences, uh, Ella? Would you like to see anyone? Would you like to see James Shaw continue or, from what you're saying, uh, perhaps someone else? Uh, well, no, actually, I mean, this is entirely a decision for the members of the party, yeah. but I, I do think that moving into what is the beginning of an election uh, lead-up, you know, next year, that all of the political parties need to have as much stability and resilience as possible moving forward. And if there are internal ructions, um, then I don't know that it's good for you know, perceptions of the stability of the party. So perhaps there is merit in a status quo. Peter? Yeah, I think that 
from a, a variety of perspectives, uh, the status quo should prevail. I think that James has a, he may not have appeal to the Green Party, but he has much wider public appeal than any of the other potential contenders. And I think going into an election, which could be quite close, in terms of getting some of those crossover votes, that could be critical. All right. Uh, some responses to this. James Shaw is a victim. The Greens, they've lurched to the, lurched to, to the radical left, uh, says someone here. Another one here says, I'm really annoyed about the outcome of this leadership vote for the Greens. I've been voting predominantly Green for my entire life, voting life. James Shaw is wonderful. And if he goes, then goodbye Greens. They won't get a seat at the decision-making table and the grandiose ideas will fly out the window along with the steady progress Shaw made is this person's point of view. Just a bit of feedback. Uh, we got some um, really interesting responses regarding the, the I've been thinkings for Ella and Peter. Uh, Irish language revival started, I thought, around the late 1800s uh, in Ireland, along with sport, music, etc. All students learn English throughout the years in school, but it's still not spoken widely. It's hard to rebuild what colonisation destroyed. Today our words are more commonly used every day here in conversation. I would say our oh, Tereo has done a bit of a better job, although it is still a work in progress. And uh, regarding a living will, living will is called an advanced directive, essential part of will making and forward planning. I'm 67. I wrote mine when I was 58. Someone said living wills are very good morally, not binding legally. Peter. Well, I think that's a fair point, and I think that's what I'm really saying, is part of this discussion needs to be not just encouraging people to make the living will type of statement, but also how a living will as a concept is factored into this whole legislative framework. Hmm. Uh, And regarding uh, traffic officers, I was very much involved 